Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, Dr. Mansur Romani shares the audio portion of his March 30th, 2021 webinar discussion with Sarah Seeger. Okay, everyone. Well, thanks for joining uh, today. Uh, I am absolutely thrilled to have with me uh, Professor Sarah Seeger from MIT. Uh, Sarah is an astrophysicist, um, a, a hunter for uh, other Earths, if you will, uh, who looks at exoplanets, but she's got an amazing personal story as well. Uh, I'm thrilled to say I, I just finished her book uh, recently. It's a wonderful memoir, and I learned a lot not only about Sarah and her background, but also about space. Uh, and I learned a ton about exoplanets, etc. So it was a really enjoyable way to to deepen my knowledge base on this topic. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about space, its implications, geopolitically, technically, scientifically, commercially, etc. Um, and uh, we're going to get into that. But before we do, uh, let me just take a minute for my traditional advertising that I do at the beginning of every series, every uh, webinar. So next week on uh, April 8th at 4 p.m., I'm going to be hosting Joan Williams. I had just finished her book, White Working Class, uh, and I have to say it was one of the more uh, profound insights that I was able to get. I think I understand American polarization perhaps better than I otherwise would have uh, having read this book. I thought it was really useful. It's a book that's been endorsed by Joe Biden. Um, and there's a whole bunch of really interesting and I think controversial insights that strike me as, as valid, uh, specifically class and how it matters uh, to politics and the dynamics all of us face in the United States and what it might mean for our future. So uh, that'll be next uh, Thursday at 4 p.m. Um, of course, last week I had, uh, or sorry, a week and a half ago, I had Michael Howell talking about his book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity, Implications for the U.S. Dollar, Geopolitics, the China Reserve Currency, Possibility, etc. Uh, a really interesting conversation. I'd encourage you to look at, uh, watch that replay. Uh, before that, I had John Hunter, a fourth grade teacher uh, who in 1978 designed the World Peace Game, which interestingly enough, um, has a four tier structure. Think of it as risk played in four levels and the upper level is outer space. Uh, and he included topics like asteroid mining and you know how do, how do uh, geopolitical dynamics come into play when you start thinking about who owns asteroids, et cetera. But he also did undersea mining, talked about what happened in the earth and, and in, uh, in the air as well. So really interesting conversation with profound implications. He's interacted with secretaries of defense and the chairmen of the joint chiefs of staff, et cetera. Uh, and he shared some of those stories. Uh, before that, I had uh, Jim Latinsky, uh, who is the founder, chairman, and CEO of MP Materials, America's largest rare earth uh, mine right now. And they're working on integrating the entire value chain. Uh, this is at the forefront of the US-China rivalry in terms of commodities of interest and strategic value. Uh, a unbelievably insightful conversation. Before that, I had Danielle DiMartino Booth, who'd written a book called Fed Up. We talked about central bank policies and what were happening. Interestingly enough, she talked about how the bond market might telegraph when there'd be chaos in the equity markets. And during that conversation, the US tenure went through 1.5%, creating some chaos in the equity markets, uh, which I thought was uh, ironically timed. Um, before that, I had Emily De, De La Bure, who uh, talked about uh, technology standards and specifically how they impact uh, the US-China rivalry, technology standards and payments um, in obviously communications equipment, 5G, et cetera. Uh, but it was a really interesting conversation that talked a little bit about how China was hijacking multilateral organizations for their benefit, or at least that's one of her, uh, her ideas. Had Kevin Warren before that. Uh, Kevin was, uh, is, excuse me, the commissioner of the Big Ten. We talked about paying student athletes, the business of sports. Um, and uh, we also talked about his personal background and how he got into uh, professional sports. He was a professional football player and then now runs the Big Ten and what it's like to run the Big Ten during a pandemic uh, and sort of what happens with student athletes. Uh, Gilman Louie before that chairman, uh, sorry, founder of InQtel, which was the CIA's venture capital arm. He'd invested in space, invested in surveillance, invested in a whole bunch of interesting ideas, and now runs a venture capital firm called Alsop Louis. Um, 
And I began this uh, series this year with Elliot Higgins, and he had a new book out that's just come out recently called We Are Bellingcat. He's the founder of Bellingcat, which is a collective of citizen journalists that use open source and social media to connect the dots. He identified that it was Malaysia 17 was shot down by the Russians, not the Ukrainians, before anyone else in the media did. He identified Bashar Assad's use of chemical weapons on his people before uh, international authorities did using simple open source media. Uh, so a real Really interesting insight uh, and, and way to connect dots. And lastly, the advertisement, uh, my book, uh, Think for Yourself, still available. Um, and uh, to support this webinar series and the podcast, etc., I have started a, a Patreon account, and I'm pleased uh, that so many of you have joined to support that. And uh, obviously, encourage any who has the time or interest and wants to support this series to do so at Patreon.com/slash/Manshiramani. So, with that advertising behind us. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Great to be here today. So uh, Sarah, let's begin with, with the inspiration. How'd you get into space? I mean, when you were a little kid, did you look up at the stars and be like, wow, I'm going to understand whether there are planets out there. What, what was the inspiration? Where'd it come from? Well, it was a while in coming, but certainly the seeds are in my childhood for sure. And I hope everyone here has had a chance to see a truly dark sky. Have you, Vikram? Have you seen like the yeah. dark sky? Yeah, you know, I, I have a place up in New Hampshire and I'm often up there. And I think when you get further from the cities, the skies do feel darker. Uh, maybe that's the noise or sort of light pollution, if you will. But yeah, yes, and, yeah, I've, yeah. and I've also spent some time at, I remember being in Arizona um, and uh, right. wow. being away from Phoenix. Uh, this was at, our, uh, at a speaking event I was at. And, you know, they had an event at night where they're like, let's go out and just look at the stars. And they had some telescopes. Wow, and awesome. Could, and in Arizona, it's drier. So the air is more clear, if you will. And yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, when I was a small child, I was about 10 years old and I got to see a dark sky for the first time. And I was just, wow, I was amazed. I mean, growing up in a city, you just don't see that. Yeah. I just yeah. loved, fell in love with the night sky. But of course I didn't know that there could be a job in space. I didn't know anything about that. So I just sort of, I think it just, a seed was planted and I think I just carried it with me for quite a while. And where was that? Sorry. You were in, you grew up in Canada, right? Right, right. I grew up in Canada and this was in Ontario. Okay. Okay. And it was north of the city. It's just like you're saying you live in the Boston area and you drive north a couple hours. It's like that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Cool. Um, and then you ended up finding your way to a career in this. Was it you get to college or studying and you find that, wait, hold on a sec, there's astrophysics? or, or, or uh, Walk us through that process. Uh, you know, my guess is many people who listen here have kids uh, that will probably be navigating similar things. I've got a 10-year-old and he looks, mm -hmm. he loves science fiction. He thinks about stars, et cetera. And, you know, I'd be curious to hear how you got to where you got. Well, I also, um, like as a child and teenager, I wasn't ultra-focused at school, by the way. Okay. But when it came time to take sciences, I took all the science classes and I took physics, which yeah. I initially struggled with. But after a while, I realized it's so awesome. I'm just going to give you this vignette of a really like defining moment for, of a defining moment for me okay. when the teacher held a board across the room with a big hole in it. And our job was to shoot a spring through that hole. Now, a lot of people could have probably done it anyway, just kind of by eyeballing it. But our assignment in the class was to use equations. We had to measure how springy the spring was and get the right set of equations. And all we were allowed to know was the distance from the board. And we could measure the angle. We could pick the angle according to our equations. And so, yeah, I was so excited that I was one of the last people to shoot my spring, but my spring went through the hole. And I was like, wow, I just can't believe. Can you imagine you can write down an equation? That's so predictive. Yeah. after understanding the properties of a material. Yep. I was just so blown away by that. And later on, I did realize I could combine those two equations of physics to make new discoveries about outer space. And that yep. was wow. But what happened was when I was about 16 years old, I found, because I lived in the inner city and I walked, believe it or not, through the university campus to get to my high school. Okay. And one day I saw a sign for an open house, a university-wide open house. And I saw one for the astronomy department. So I must have had some interest in astronomy or known, you know, about people working it. I don't know. But all I remember was going up the elevator to one of the highest floors of the physics building, walking up that elevator, and I saw a table with pamphlets and professors and grad students. Mm -hmm. And it was an aha. Wow, I can be an astronomer for a job? Yeah. This is an actual job you can do? 
And it was one of the top 10 moments of my life. But just because you mentioned there are probably people out there, maybe yourself included, with kids, I went home and I told my dad how awesome this was. And it was so great. And he started getting angry at me. And he said, no, Sarah, that's not. And it wasn't because he wasn't encouraging me to have a career. It's that he didn't know that astronomers could get a job and be gainfully employed. Yeah. <laughs> like a permanent job that's no risk of being you know, let go because there's not enough work and yep. one where I could earn enough to support myself. Yep. And he was very, very adamant that I pick a career that was more sure. <laughs> so, so it was yep. a bit of a roundabout path, but I did get there eventually. Sure. I have, uh, my parents were immigrants from India. And so I, uh, you know, if I wasn't going to be a doctor, then maybe you could be a lawyer. And if that didn't work, we'll find something else, maybe engineering, but like you're getting a job that has yeah. it. You know, you're going to study something that's employable. And that were the, those were the choices given to me, doctor or lawyer. <laughs> exactly. And my father even thought I should be a dermatologist. He said, look, that's a field of medicine. People rarely die. Nope. You can make a lot of money, work part-time and have <laughs> enough, lots of money and time for your family that you're going to have. Yep. And yep. indeed we joke about this in my family now because my children have, they're teenagers and they've seen a dermatologist for acne and yes, the one, uh, they just breeze in, they have their assistants do all the work and a lot happens. They just sort of, they look at photos in advance, perhaps mm -hmm. breeze in, breeze out. And they make it look really easy. Like my dad described. <laughs> and well, we see the bill sometimes our insurance yep, covers it, but sometimes there's a mix up and we see, wow, it's astronomical how much. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I understand. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's, let's come back to space. Cause I don't want to get people inspired to be dermatologists. I want to get them inspired about space. Um, so you end up at some point you end up at Princeton um, and you do a great job in the story of articulating all this uh, in your book, uh, sir, but you end up at Princeton and you, at some point you find planets. I, I, you want to figure out whether there's other planets. So now that you're an astronomer, you're looking at space, you're studying things, there's probably a range of topics. What inspired the look for planets? Well, it really was timing. You know, I think in many jobs and businesses, including yours, I'm sure, when opportunity knocks, you know, you're presented with a choice to take it or not. And I was in graduate school looking for a PhD thesis topic when the first exoplanets around sun-like stars were discovered. Mm -hmm. And my advisor, my research advisor suggested that I, I work on these new planets. And it wasn't discovery so much as trying to understand their atmospheres and what they might look like as heated by their stars. Yep. But it was incredibly exciting time. Yep. Um, so there's two more tidbits about your career that I want to get to. Then we'll just jump into the topics of space and, and sort of current affairs and current thinking about space. But um, so you have this phone call that shows up and, you know, it's phone calls from the MacArthur Foundation. And uh, I think you in the book describe it, how your assistant screened it out <laughs> and just um, walk us through that. I, not many people get this phone call in life. And so this is an amazing phone call to receive, but share that story with us. Well, this came, of course, much later in my career, but I had this for a short time. I had this great assistant. His name was Derek. And in my line of work, we often get phone calls from people who have seen a UFO and they want to tell you about it or send you very important images. So I don't normally pick my phone up and yeah. So the assistant picks up the phone and it's a very mysterious call. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to talk to me, but they can't say what. And I think it might've reminded him of some of the UFO callers who are a bit dodgy. And so he said, I'm, I'm very sorry. He said something like, I'm very sorry, but I, I can't put you through. Thank you. Goodbye. And so then I received an email from them and I was reading through this email and it's like, okay, this is, this is interesting. Yeah. It's going to be one of two things. Like either it's going to be awesome and they're going to give me a MacArthur award or they're going to ask me to like validate another nominee, which they've, I've done before actually. Yeah. And in their email, they just said, it didn't say much. It just said, well, your protective assistant didn't let us through, but it was worded very nicely. And it said, can you please uh, find a time to meet with us by phone? So yeah. yeah, the next day. So then I had a planned time to speak with them. I mean, who today calls randomly, right? That's like, right. Don't you always email or text message and then you make a, an appointment for a phone call. So Yep. Yep. Well, that's very exciting. Um, and then when they do call, they say, are you sitting down? And they, they make it very yeah. exciting and dramatic. Yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations. It's obviously well-deserved. So the, let's go back to sort of the topic that, that led 
the MacArthur Foundation, Sarah, to, to give you this award. And it's sort of how you identify exoplanets, right? I mean, that, that's, I think some of the inspiration was, it's almost a methodology that you came up with to say, hey, and I'm not an astrophysicist, and so I'm gonna, I don't wanna do any disservice here. But the, the layman's version that I think of it as is, you got a star, bright light coming, a planet sometimes goes in front of it, and therefore the, 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 the intensity of the light will drop while the planet's in front of it and then come back up, right? Right, right. That's actually the main way we find planets today. If you look at all those stars in my background, we have a space satellite. There was a former space telescope, ground-based telescopes that monitor large parts of the sky. Yep. And yeah, we create brightness time series, like the brightness of the stars, a function of time, and then use computers to analyze like literally millions of stars looking for that tiny drop in brightness that might signal an exoplanet. Well, my work came a bit after that because those ideas have been around for half a century or more. And indeed, you know, we have a lot of binary stars. There's some eclipsing binary stars that orbit each other. So this idea of finding a new object by an eclipse is something we already had in our field. But I was working on exoplanet atmospheres really long before the field had many people at all. And one of my signature accomplishments was describing how we could study exoplanet atmospheres. And that is when the planet transits, when it goes in front of the star, some of the starlight shines through the atmosphere. Yeah. And I want you to just imagine shining a flashlight through a fog. Some light makes it through, some doesn't. Mm -hmm. And by figuring out what wavelengths, you know, what colors of light don't make it through, we can actually identify gases in exoplanet atmospheres. And today we've studied dozens of exoplanet atmospheres this way using the Hubble Space Telescope and others. Yeah. And Sarah, talk to me, why do we care what's in their atmosphere? Is it that you're looking for signature gases that are produced by life? Is it that you want to know if they're inhabitable? Is it just curiosity? Yeah. Well, what, why do we care? To start with, it's just curiosity. And so in pure science, we just, we explore and we, we don't know what we're going to find. Sometimes we don't know why we're doing it. But in this case, we're trying to understand how these planets formed. What are they made of? Mm -hmm. We hope that we can get some insight later into how our system came to be, because our solar system is quite rare. We have not found any solar system copies out of all the thousands of planets we found. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, we do want to look at the atmosphere to see if the planet could potentially support life. Mm -hmm. And we want to look at the atmosphere of small rocky worlds to try to see if there are any gases that might be attributed to life. Gotcha. And I chose my words very carefully. That's why it sounded so complicated. I didn't say, yeah, we're going to find aliens, yep. but we're not. We're going to, you know, we want to know that the planet has liquid water because yep. liquid water is needed for all life as we know it. And we'll look for water vapor in the atmosphere as a sign of that liquid water. And in some of your works, are you talk about this habitable zone, right? Which is you can be around, it sort of depends on the intensity of the star, depends how far the planet or the exoplanet is from that star, uh, depends how fast it's moving around, the size of the planet, et cetera. Uh, but there's a range, presumably, where water is not frozen and doesn't boil away. <laughs> right, right. Like in our own solar system, we have our sister planet, Venus, which is so hot. Its surface is far too hot for any life as we know it. We think Venus had oceans mm -hmm. before, like a billion years ago or more, but those oceans boiled off, as you said. And Mars is so cold, there's no surface water, liquid water. Interesting. So this so-called Goldilocks zone is the orbit or, that a planet has around its star, yep. distance from the star, whereas heated by the star, the planet's not too hot, not too cold, but yep. just right for life. Yep. Interesting. You so know, wait, that's, it's not really the end of the story though. It's a bit okay, of a, okay. you know, a lot of things are, it's a bit of an oversimplification because it really, the temperature of the planet at the surface really depends on the atmosphere. You know, here on earth, we talk about adding parts per million carbon dioxide. That's tiny, a part per million yeah. and the effects that and other greenhouse gases might have. But imagine a planet that had double the carbon dioxide or 10 times more. So it's really the atmosphere that controls the surface temperature. And so we need to learn a lot more about individual planets yep. to take the inventory of their gases to know if they're actually habitable. And do all planets have atmospheres? You know, that's a great question. We think all planets are born with atmospheres because mm -hmm. when they form, there's like little planetesimals colliding and that heats them up and releases gas. But some planets, the ones that are incredibly close to their star, like 20, 30, 40 times as close to their star as Earth is to our sun, they're so hot, we think the sun's energy and wind and high energy particles might have gotten rid of the atmosphere. And we have good evidence for that in one case. Yeah, interesting. So they're all born with atmospheres, but some of them will lose it. Yep, 
Yep. Okay. So let's let's take a step back and talk about current affairs here. There seems to be a resurgence in the interest in space. And whether that's NASA announcing an Artemis program, whether it's billionaires deciding, hey, I'm going to Mars, whether it's we're going to colonize the moon and move beyond, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why do you think that is? Is there something that happened here that reinvigorated interest in space? I think that interest has been there all along, but the private commercial space flight companies getting up and running, and several of them, have made access to space cheaper, actually. And they've also shifted from sending big, giant, expensive missions to smaller, more focused ones. And I think that has helped kind of get a, what you call resurgence. Yeah. Well, you, you raised a topic there, which I think is really uh, an enabler of so much, which is the dropping cost of launch or the, sort of the falling cost, excuse me, uh, the cost of access to space dropping precipitously and, and what that may spur. Now, obviously we, we hear about how it could spur um, space tourism, for instance, we hear how it could spur uh, development, but what does it spur in terms of science uh, and your field? How does your field get affected by it? I mean, I know you've launched a bunch of smaller satellites, uh, so maybe talk about that a little bit. Yes, well, there's two separate things. One is this field called CubeSats, where people out at Cal Poly a while back invented a small standard of 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters. And we have several cubes now, so you can imagine stacking that into a three unit CubeSat or six unit. And by doing that, there then arose like a cottage industry of small companies that built parts. So you, if you wanted, it would be really hard, but you could actually buy different parts, um, assemble them and send a satellite to space. And indeed, sometimes uh, universities and some small countries like Ecuador, Vietnam, they can become spacefaring nations because some parts are available and they can build a small satellite and get a cheap access. So there's that whole kind of small sat CubeSat industry. Yeah. And that has really gotten people interested, but typically they're not big enough to do like looking up at the stars kind of science, but they can have done things uh, looking down at Earth's atmosphere. So that's one thing. Um, and for science, so I think that actually, honestly, it, what it's done is it's like enabled this whole new generation of engineers who have built and launched um, space satellites. Like typically, if you graduated from engineering school and go to work at an aerospace company or a NASA center, you know, you might not build anything that goes to space for a long time, 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe more. Because you're then, but this has made this like generation of people. So that is um, also helping to open up. But the bigger things for space, um, we haven't quite seen yet. But you know that um, I've been involved with the planet Venus yeah. and Rocket Lab, one of the private commercial spaceflight companies that has um, had huge success lately. We've teamed up with them and we're planning to go to Venus in a small, yep. very small, very focused mission. Interesting. And I know there's some controversy around it, but there may be signs of life on Venus, some some gas, et cetera. Et cetera. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I was involved with a team that made a big announcement last September. Yep. And hard work over literally five years led up to an, this announcement that we found a gas, a signal of a gas on Venus, phosphine, mm -hmm. a gas that shouldn't be there under any circumstance because Venus hardly has any hydrogen mm -hmm. and the temperatures and pressures are not favorable for phosphine formation. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. on Earth, phosphine is only associated with life. Either humans, we make pesticides or with life outside in oxygen-free environments like wetlands and mm -hmm. other places. And so we made this announcement, we found the signal, we don't know what's caused it. It could be extremely unknown chemistry on Venus or possibly even life itself. Interesting. And the reason it's controversial is people, you know, as humans, like we don't like new things. I don't know if you've ever been presented with a new idea and you just were natural is inclinations to just resist, resist. Yeah. Like even yep. when exoplanets were first discovered, it took a good five years before people accepted them as being actual exoplanets and not a fake signal in the data. Hmm. But anyway, the reason this phosphine is controversial is because the signal is very, very tiny. Hmm. And we make all of our data public in astronomy typically. And other people who looked at the data and reanalyzed it, some groups did not find the signal. Interesting. And so this is an ongoing controversy. Some groups did find it, some didn't, and so. Yeah, well, yeah. what I also find fascinating about that, Sarah, is that it seems to me, and again, I'm not in the field, so I wanna 
make sure I couch this question carefully. I think people had written off Venus. I, I mean, I don't remember attention on Venus. It's always Mars, Moon, this right. way. It not is that always way. Mars. Well, so. you know, if you, like, I'm not sure, um, I was gonna say, I'm not sure how old you are, but I don't remember this either. But in the 70s, Russia and the US sent multiple missions to Venus. Russia had this huge program where like year after year, they'd send a mission, a probe. Interesting. And they got up to like Venera 14 or something and they didn't all make it, but so yeah. many missions and each mission fixed a problem that the prior one had. Venus, um, Russia even sent two balloons to Venus. They lasted for two days each on battery power mm -hmm. and took measurements of the atmosphere. And many of these missions were probes that dropped down through the atmosphere and measured all kinds of things. Hmm. And so I'm not sure exactly what happened not having been around then, but perhaps they felt that they'd not solved everything because there are a lot of remaining mysteries. Yep. But Venus was very popular at one time. Now about life on Venus, you know, the surface is far too hot for any kind of life to survive. But up in the clouds, it's like here on earth, you said you have a place in New Hampshire. I'm not sure if you ever go hiking and it can be yep. much colder on the top of the mountain. Yep. Surprisingly, right? Yep. Well, on Venus too, as you get up above the surface, it gets cooler and cooler. And there is a layer in the atmosphere that is, it's actually just like it is here outside. Hmm. Yeah. There's a layer in the atmosphere that has a very similar temperature and pressure to what's here on our surface. And so it was Carl Sagan who half a century ago postulated, perhaps there is life yep. high in the atmosphere, bacteria in the clouds of Venus. And just one more related point is on our own earth, we do have life in the clouds. Yep. And yep. it's life that's upswept from the surface and it just stays there for a short time before being brought back down. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I have pale blue dot up here, which was one of okay. the first inspirations for me to get interested in space yeah. in that book. So, um, but yeah, I uh, I also don't remember the uh, the Venus focus, um, but it sounds like maybe that's that may there may be a resurgence there of Venus interest, if you will. Um, let's turn the other direction, Sarah. So there seems to be a lot of interest in the Moon. Um, why? Should we care about the moon? Are there materials there? Is this a geopolitical thing? China's going there, so we have to go there. Like, why should we care about the moon? I think it's all of the above. It's like the nearest place we can go. There's a bit of that geopolitical bravada. Like I need to be able to show what I can do in a way that the world can see. Mm -hmm. But the moon is really interesting. I mean, we think um, it formed when a body collided with earth and people are still trying to understand all the details. Mm -hmm. Do you have interest in the moon? Like, do you think it's somewhere we should be going or should we just forget about the moon and then just go to Mars, go to asteroids? Well, look, I'm as a science oriented person. I'm all for learning as much as possible about everything, right? So that's step one. Uh, but but I've the part of the moon that find that intrigues me is the possibility of helium and possible energy sources for fusion, if you can figure that out, either back here on Earth or as sort of a way station on, its, on your way further, et cetera. Um, but my guess is going anywhere, we learn, right? And so going there is gonna teach us stuff and it's closer, it's cheaper, it gives us more frequency of experience. So that would be my thinking, but again, I'm not from the fields there. So I wanna- No, no, that's a really important point. I like everything you said. It's a good place to learn. There might be some useful resources. I don't know quite if I'd see it as a way station myself because you still have to get there and land and then take off again. Yep. But I think it's a great place to learn. Yep. What about Mars? Um, will people love Mars? I mean, this vision of boots on Mars, like what could be more awesome? So I feel like we're destined to go to Mars sometime. Yeah. But so let's, let's pause that for a second. So there's been a real drop-off in human space related travel, right? I mean, we send probes, we send robots, we'll send satellites, we'll spend all sorts of, is there some risk factor relating to the use of humans in huge, space? That's huge. Sort of Nobody wants to politics? see. Yeah. It's huge risk factor. Like, would you, well, let me ask you something. Would you go to Mars? No, no interest. Oh, no, really? Oh my gosh. Okay. Most <laughs> people right I think now. would. Not right now. Let's let other people go. <laughs> okay, right, Let's right, prove right, it right. out. Let's make sure it works. Then maybe, but yeah, not. Yeah. And you know, I think a human going to Mars and suffering a fatality, I think that would really set the program back. So I don't know that. Yeah. I'm with you on this. I don't know if we're ready for that, that level of risk right now. I mean, you know, if a probe blows up, it's bad news because you've lost a lot of money, but it's not anywhere close to humans. Yeah. How important do you think this particular factor is in the commercialization of the launch industry and space specifically? Meaning, is NASA outsourcing that risk to SpaceX? Is NASA Definitely. I was talking to someone the other day who was not a space buff. 
And the funny thing was this person thought that SpaceX, just everything blows up because all they see are the headlines, you know? And I tried to explain that you're not hearing the more mundane that they've just launched their nth rocket that has now landed part of the, that has landed safely and they reused it, whatever, n number of times. Mm -hmm. All they're seeing is the risk because they're trying new things. They're trying to get new things and that involves risk in that. Yes. So I do. I do feel like, I, I like how you said it, risk yeah. is being outsourced. Yeah, and also relating to that, how much of this has to do with access to capital? I mean, it's sort of curious to me that it's not, I mean, they are entrepreneurs, but they're billionaires who have been successful that have access to resources with, in theory, whatever duration of capital they need, right? I mean, Elon Musk controls his own checkbook. Uh, Bezos controls his own checkbook, et cetera. They're not subject to someone else saying, okay, we've tried, it's been 10 years, let's pull the plug. Um, well, that's definitely how they can get started and how this whole thing got started mm-hmm. is by using their own capital to do their own thing. Mm-hmm. But if you look closely, they're very, very clever. <laughs> like in SpaceX, you know, they have large government contracts yeah. to develop technology that then they can use for other things to go to Mars. Etc. Mm-hmm. And I heard this talk once for someone from someone from SpaceX who was talking about this was a while back about Starlink. Well, once they nail Starlink and make money, guess what? They can use that idea for when we in the future might colonize Mars. We're going to need a communication system for our people on Mars and for us to communicate with each other and back to Earth. Oh, so a satellite network around Mars? <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah. This is what they were saying. They were sort of yeah. alluding to the fact that do it here, make money here. And then, and then you have money and know-how to do it there. So it's incredibly clever how, I mean, you probably have more insight being a consultant on this than I do, but how, you know, getting started with capital and the key leveraging, Yeah. you know, like Rocket Lab, who wants to go to Venus, they got a contract from NASA to go to the moon. And that's surely a stepping stone Yep. to use government money to carry out a contract. But then whatever you figure out, you can still use that. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> so. it is it. I, I worry about the social and sort of political potential backlash that comes from government expenditures on billionaire-owned companies for the potential increasing of value for these billionaire-owned companies, right? And, and so I, I do think there's a little bit of worry I have on that front, which actually, nice segue, uh, Sarah, here to the topic of budgets. I mean, how do you respond to people that say, Sarah, it's nice space science. I get it, but we got a lot of problems here on earth. We, we have a lot of joblessness. We need a lot of investment here. There are bridges here in the greater <laughs> Boston area that this American society of civil engineers. I haven't driven to Boston in a while, but I, I hear you, the streets, the right? potholes. So why, yeah. how can we justify spending money on that when we have so many needs here? Yeah, I mean, there are many answers to that question mm-hmm. and it is a great question. There's a lot of validity to that question, but I'll run through some of my answers and it would be great to get your feedback on which one you love, you like. Um, Okay, let me think about about where to start. One of them is, you know, should we have art and music and exploration and do great things as a society? And that's up for debate, of course, but if the answer is yes, then, you know, space is included in some of that. The second answer is more, a little more complicated, but it's about pure science and exploration. Mm -hmm. Like no one said, aha, I want to make sure we all have GPS on our phones and our cars so we can navigate. No, 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 no. No one ever said, you know what? We need laser surgery. So you don't have to stay in the hospital for three months. You can just have an outpatient, inpatient, outpatient, and get a tiny laparoscopic incision. Mm -hmm. And these came from pure science, people exploring how to build rockets, people working on basic physics. Now it might be that it's one in a million things that pans out, but you could never set out to make the kind of big inventions that move our society forward and make it safer, including, including like basic antibiotics. So we want to support this general kind of pure science, Mm -hmm. even though some of it goes nowhere. And even in astronomy, once in a while, we come up with something useful, medical imaging. If you've ever had an MRI, it has its roots in astronomical imaging, actually. Interesting. Another yeah. reason is, okay, so um, here in the US, we, we do struggle with recruiting young people into STEM fields. Yeah. You look at a place like MIT, it's really quite remarkable that a good fraction of our faculty, like myself included, were not born in the United States mm-hmm. and like a large number of our graduate students too. Yeah. And so having space, it's like kids love dinosaurs 
you know, kids love outer space. Yep. We're not going to tell that 10 year old, like we're not going to tell your 10 year old son, you know, you could have a great job working for this aerospace company on defense. <laughs> America's, you know, space yeah. defense network. Like that's not a thing. They're not going to want to know that they can get billion dollar contracts, but you say, wow, space planets. Yeah. And so we're trying to make discoveries to nurture and, and tell kids and tell people about this so we can get more people in there. Yeah. And so those are kind of main reasons for art and curiosity, yeah. for new discovery, and just sort of this more practical thing that we need to showcase space yep. um, for STEM. Yeah, I'd add onto it also just the nationalism, right? I mean, if you do think you're in a world where uh, there is a competitive nature. Uh, yes, to yes. I, I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I usually have that fourth one as well. Okay. <laughs> we can't show off what we can really do in space. Like we, you know, there's a lot going on behind the scenes here but we yep. can show our amazing new telescopes, like the James Webb Space Telescope we're gonna launch. And that really does, yeah, it shows off, like it's a national pride, but it also shows the world what we can do. Yep, yep. No, I think all of them make a ton of sense. And I am a big believer, especially in sort of the pure science and and what we, you know, I studied innovation when I was at MIT. Oh, wow. PhD program, innovation, entrepreneurship, and te specifically technological innovation. And oftentimes the pure science has many unintended, uh, you know, consequences of, of applicability and relevance to the real world. Yeah. So, and training people uh, like you at MIT, like yeah. that yeah. part of it is to, you can't totally train how to innovate, of course, but you can train yeah. how to problem solve on That's huge, right. overwhelming topics that people have to, you know, break down into smaller amounts. I do have one more I sometimes give, I don't know if you like this or not, but it's sort of a, it's not like the best, it's not the most pleasant example, but you know, it's really a big jobs program. Think of it like, you know, you can give someone a handout or you give people money and then it trickles spreads out throughout the economy. Sure, sure. And, and by the way- I mean, Most I, of our money, by the way, that's spent, it's not what you'd expect. It, it seems weird, but most of the money spent is on people. Yeah. You talked about sending humans to space. Well, it's not just the, the materials to actually build the spacecraft are very minor compared to all the testing and risk assessment mm -hmm. that has to go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thousands and thousands and thousands of people for every one person that yeah. goes that, right? And I mean, the people like designing- not just testing, but designing and building and everything takes a long time. Yeah. So Sarah, let me take a pause here and ask two fun questions that I ask every one of my guests, uh, which is the first one is, do you have a favorite book or a book you'd recommend? Um, so we'll, we'll get your answer there. Then I'm going to ask you about your favorite movie or miniseries. Well, the book I've been sort of fixated on lately when people ask me this question, I'm not sure if you've seen this book before. It's actually like a young adult book. It's called The Giver. Oh, absolutely. Lois Lowry's book. Yeah. And I actually only came across it because when my kids were younger, they had to read it at school. Yep. But this book was really astonishing to me. It, hmm. without giving the spoiler, it, it really shows you that we get so absorbed in our culture and our own little bubble that we fail to see outside of it. And that was yep. like the question you asked me before. Like, here I am working in space. You wonder, do I ever think about what it means negatively to the rest of the world? Like, we don't usually because we're just... And this yeah. book, it's really, um, you don't expect the ending. You don't expect what happens. And it's, yeah. it's just, it's really, it just makes you think. Well, it's interesting. I read the all four. So the yes, I've read all four one, as well. It said the whole series. I read the whole series last year with my son. Uh, oh, wow. And it was a, it was a fun experience to read it with him because, you know, he's like, wait, wow. And, and uh, I was like, even more wow. Than he yeah, was. yeah. I think adults are even more wowed by it. <laughs> yes. I think like it's it, just so the people listening know it starts out with this utopian society where everything is made perfect mm -hmm. and sort of it's about a young boy who's coming of age and he eventually gets some glimpses that maybe it's actually not maybe it's the opposite of the utopia it's a dystopia yeah. and just sort of the way that he sees that and comes to terms with yeah. everything around him it's just incredibly moving i think it is more impactful for adults like it makes the kids think too but it's it's i hope everyone can read it and yeah. if you didn't because for people closer to our age, we didn't have that book at school. It wasn't exist. It didn't exist yet. And if you don't have kids, you might not find it. Yep. But it's good to hear that it's re it's reading material for, for everybody. Yeah, no, I loved it. So uh, a yeah. great recommendation. Um, how about movie or miniseries? You know, I don't have a particular one, one that comes to mind. I work so hard at my job and I use so much brain power that when I sit down to watch TV, it's usually something, okay. something pretty mindless. One I movie I liked, I did like though, it's, I won't say it's one of my favorites, but also because it made me think. It was the movie called Arrival. Mm -hmm. And that's a science fiction movie okay. about intelligent aliens that come to Earth. But instead of being little green humanoids, like think E.T., yep. they're actually so different from anything you could imagine. 
And we all love to imagine aliens will come and visit us. But in this case, like we can't even communicate with them because yeah, they're not going to be little green humanoids that can talk to us. Mm. Right. I mean, so this movie was really creative and really, uh, I'm not going to say realistic because I'm not expecting aliens to visit, but definitely more realistic than the little humanoids. Yep. Okay, good. I will put it on my list of movies to watch. Uh, (laughs) All right. So since you raised the topic, Sarah, of aliens, um, I'm going to go in this direction through uh, Avi Loeb's book, Extraterrestrial. And uh, I I don't know how to say it. Ao Moo Moo or Mau Mau. Um, I don't know how to say it either. So, (laughs) Okay, good. We had, and I'm going to, my layperson's version of it for those listening, Sarah will correct me and, and inform us as to whether this is the right way to describe it. An interstellar object shows up, wraps around the, the earth, uh, leaves at a speed. The sun, wraps around the sun. Ra- sort of whips around the sun, right? Um, and leaves at a speed that is not predicted by gravity, uh, that's shinier than we expect from a luminosity perspective, um, and is shaped in a way that doesn't appear. It looks more like a cigar rather than something that we've seen here uh, in, in terms of interstellar traffic of I- items. Doesn't have a, uh, a trail behind it like a comet might of gas or, or ice melting off or anything to that effect. Um, and it's not an asteroid given the shape or something like that. Um, and so the hypothesis is, is this some sort of alien technology, something that was left that was sort of space junk or alien junk that wandered its way through space and came through our solar system? Um, and that's the extent of my knowledge, Sarah. So I'll say yes, well, <laughs> that's the great thing about observations is, yep. you know, discovering something crazy. I mean, that's why we that's why that's why I'm in science. That's why scientists are here. It's that wow, that moment to find the yeah. most unusual, never expected thing. Yeah. So it's definitely created a lot of interest, actually. And I just want to drill down a bit because in the Avi Loeb arguments and book, he's not specifically saying, "Oh, it definitely is an alien oh. artifact." You know, he is actually saying that we have very little information, and you've summarized it very nicely, by the way, Vikram. <laughs> but the evidence is there. There's that information. And in what he, I'm not going to speak for him, obviously, but I think his argument is that it's got to be something we've never seen before that makes no sense at all, or it can be equally valid to explain it could be an alien artifact. And some of the other ideas that have come out are like, um, like a giant hydrogen iceberg Hmm. in that, uh, maybe another planetary system had a Pluto like object that a collision knocked part of it off and sent it flying through space. And eventually it came here. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about what you said, I just want to emphasize it, that when this object came through our solar system, you know, it was affected by the sun's gravity. So it came and yet whipped around the sun and then left, but that exact trajectory doesn't, it's not due to the sun's gravity alone. There had to be something else. And when we think about comets, like comets in our own solar system, when they go near the sun, they heat up and they give off gas. So imagine like, you know, releasing gas, then the object can change position. It's also different mass and gravity affects it differently. Mm -hmm. But people looked and hadn't seen evidence for that. They hadn't seen any like outgassing. And so that's why the alien artifact uh, idea can be elevated. You know, normally you dismiss it, but we we just don't have enough info. Now, all that aside, um, the great thing about astronomy is that if you see one, you will likely see more. And we have a big new observatory coming online called the Vera Rubin Observatory. And it is going to be scanning the skies like over and over and over again once it's online. Mm -hmm. And people predict that we'll be able to catch more of these objects. Interesting. And so we'll, you know, we'll have to, you know, you can sort of pick Uamuamua to death, but it might not help. So if we can wait and get more and, you know, people are even talking about sending a spacecraft by it. Your spacecraft would already have to be in space because you won't have time to launch. Yeah. So the idea is it would be out there, maybe orbiting Earth, and then it would it would go to the object when we find it. Yep. So the other thing, uh, since we're on the topic of potential unexplained phenomenon that might suggest alien technology, I know there is a planet, is it Tabby? The Tabby planet where there's some, some funky patterns in terms of the... Um, 
the the light we're receiving from it that doesn't seem symmetrical, doesn't seem like it's a exoplanet. And at least a couple of uh, things I've read about this suggest, A, it could be a Dyson sphere built around it uh, of a really advanced civilization, or it might just be an alien superstructure, which yes, I know is yes. a big um, hypothesis, so yeah. I'm sorry to throw it out there, but I want right, to hear right. your reaction. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's another great example in astronomy, how we we can find really new things. Like, I just feel like in everyday life, we've kind of seen it all. Maybe we haven't seen it all, but you get a bit jaded. But in astronomy, we can sometimes find brand new things. And remember we were talking about the backgrounds, like the stars in my background here and the missions that look for planets where they're monitoring the star brightness mm -hmm. and they monitor star brightness and they're looking for a tiny drop in brightness if a planet happened to go in front of that star. Well, this was um, Tabby's star was found by a person named Tabitha Boyajan. And so it's called Tabby's star. And Tabby's star is crazy. As you said, it would brighten and then dim in like crazy ways that just didn't seem to be reminiscent of anything we've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. And so people did want to postulate um, an alien, yeah, crazy alien stuff. But, you know, I hate to like bring it down, but eventually people settled on a consensus that it's some kind of debris disk, some kind of disk okay. of dust and gas. And they were able to explain the measurements that way. Okay. All but right. it was a really exciting thing because every time it would start to brighten or dim, yep. astronomers around the world would get really excited and point their telescopes to it and get more data. So, yeah. Yeah. So you just raised a really interesting topic that, you know, last year I had uh, Susan Helms, uh, an astronaut who spent 211 days uh, here on this webinar uh, with me. And we talked a little bit about space junk. This is a problem, isn't it? I mean, at least it seems to be a problem if a lot of it is starting to form in, in this sort of around the earth preventing or possibly creating uh, issues for us to, to look through it or, or travel through it. So how big a deal is this space junk and space debris that's around? Well, people are getting more and more concerned with it. And I'll tell you, I had a CubeSat, a little satellite that we, let's say, invented at MIT and eventually NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab built it for us and operated it. And so we would get notifications. Um, there is a body that takes, you know, monitors every single thing in low Earth orbit. And you get this alert, like a warning saying, you know, at this time, usually it was a day or two away, your satellite is going to come this close to another satellite. And it's like, there's nothing you can really do if you don't have, if your satellite doesn't have propulsion, you can't move out of the way. Um, you just might have to worry that you might, you know, yeah, get coll collide. And so as Starlink and other of these giant mega constellations for communication go up there, the problem's just going to get worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And one of these CubeSats I was mentioning that came from one of, let's call it a new space ferry nation, I think it was Ecuador. It got launched and then immediately something collided and killed it. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't think it's like, like today as we speak, I don't know that we're worried about any one thing getting damaged, but it's definitely a growing problem. Is there a solution to it? I mean, is it, you know, well, this up? Like, do you yeah. sort of get a I big magnet? Do you can, sort of something? Like, what do you I do? Mean, so for CubeSats, there's a, it's not a law but it's a kind of rule you're supposed to abide by that your CubeSat will not last longer than 25 years. Okay. That means like if you, my CubeSat, for example, we went to a low earth orbit, we were released out of the space station. Mm -hmm. And after two years, we, two years, there's a bit more than two, two and a half years, we dragged in earth's atmosphere and then burned up in the atmosphere. So my CubeSat is gone. It was called Asteria. But if you go to a higher orbit, there's less of Earth's atmosphere reaches out there and doesn't drag it down as quickly. So one thing you could have a rule that says, you know, after so many years, yeah. you have to, you, but you might have to deploy like a sail or just deploy something that gives you more drag, gives your satellite more drag. So if you had a rule that you have to, you know, take care of your satellite, there's a higher orbit where you have to, after you're done, go to a so-called graveyard orbit and stay out of people's way. For, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I don't know how we would enforce that, that after some amount of time, or if your satellite is done or defunct, you've got to get rid of it responsibly. You know, yeah. other people have other ideas. They want to go and collect them, like send up a bigger satellite that has like a giant net and collect them and bring them back, bring them down to burn up in the atmosphere. But I don't know how these things are going to get funded or placed. Yeah. It does seem that governance of space is going to be an emerging challenge. Um, yeah. Right. Like astronomers are angry about Starlink and other things because they're going to, they're really polluting our night sky at certain times of night, mm -hmm. but there's no, there was no like environmental assessment. You know, if you're going to build a building in a, in an area that's very sensitive, you, there are rules you have to go through, but space somehow it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not governed. It's not, yeah. 
It's not governed, yeah. Yeah, so um, I wanna talk about some space technologies, Sarah, that I think some of you've been involved with, some you might have knowledge of. Um, and then I've got a couple of questions that have come in. The first is radioactive cooling. I've heard uh, about sort of bringing the coolness of space to earth and there's some startups working on that. Any insights or thoughts there? Wait, can you say that again, please? Radioactive cooling is what I've heard it's called. Uh, there's a company called Sky Cool Systems that says, look, it's really cold up there. Uh, it's hot here. Why do we need to have air conditioning and burn fossil fuels? Let's bring the cold down. And apparently there's a way to do this. Okay, I haven't heard. That's amazing. I haven't heard that. I'll, I'll have to look into okay, that. Okay, I'll, I'll send you the name of the company. You can it just seems up. like the amount of energy you'd be expending to go up there and bring something back would completely wipe out any any benefits. But I'll, I'll send you a link on that and see and get your reaction <laughs> offline. Uh, how about the solar capture? So if you have a satellite there that captures the solar energy and beams that back down to the earth, that I think the Air Force recently launched something or the US launched something. That, is that a promising way to capture energy? I mean, I guess I could see some benefits for it, but I feel like we, it's still quite expensive and probably not that efficient. I mean, if you think about it here, if we could find a way to make solar energy panels more efficient or yep. make them, you know, thinner so we can put them on all surfaces, all, you know, roofs and just really cover them. I think that would be a more efficient way to go about getting energy from the sun. Okay. I'm going to take one of the questions that got sent in here to me, which is, Sarah, you may have talked in the past on some of your talks about the risk of a Carrington event. Um, do you, should we worry about such a dynamic here? Oh, we should absolutely life? worry about that. That let me tell you about the Carrington event. Yeah, explain what it is, because I, I know what it is. This is the EMP or the solar flare that sort of yeah. in a breakdown. Around 1850 or so, there was an amateur astronomer in Britain. He self-funded, actually. Yeah. Apparently, his family had a beer company, and so he <laughs> self-funded himself as an astronomer. Yeah. And he was studying sunspots, and he noticed that the sunspots brightened a lot and whitened around the edges. Mm -hmm. And a day and a half later, our Earth became electrified. And mm -hmm. what had happened was our sun gave off a flare. And there's a more complicated word, coronal mass ejection. It actually gave off part of its mass. Hmm. And at the time, we hadn't really understood magnetic fields and interactions. It's just Maxwell's equations weren't yet written down. Yeah. But it turned out that that part of the sun had a small, a bit of a magnetic field embedded in it. And I don't know if you took physics at MIT, but that magnetic field from our sun came hurtling towards Earth in that parcel and hit our magnetic field and induced a current. And people, you know, they could see the northern lights almost down to the equator. Hmm. And here where we live, apparently you could go outside and like read a book outside exactly. at night because the northern lights were so bright. Telegraph operators, they didn't need batteries. Some telegraph lines caught fire. Yeah. And essentially this event wreaked havoc. Yeah. The concern today is that if that happens again, our power grid will go down. Yeah. And I'm not an expert in this area, but to my knowledge, we don't have a way to uh, bring stuff back quickly. It would be like a pandemic of a different kind. Yeah. yeah there's like, unless you have a generator, like not everyone has a generator. And we had a small event like this in the late 1980s, actually in Quebec, hmm. in Canada. So it was a lesser event. So it didn't uh, come down like all the way to the equator. And so I think Canada's grid is what we call hardened. They have like effectively think of circuit breakers. Yep. But we really, uh, yeah, we definitely worry about that. And we don't know when it'll happen again. Well, we don't know if it will happen. We don't know when, but because yeah. it happened once, we think it could happen another time. Well, I've looked at it from the perspective of geopolitical and military induced versions of this, right? I and mean, the, the, the EMP attack risks, right? That someone right. makes a nuclear bomb 25 miles above Kansas takes down. And there's a great novel written about that called One Second After. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I'm going to read I, that. Yeah. I would encourage you to read it. It's, it'll, it'll, connect the dots in a different way for you that you may appreciate. Right. Um, but uh, okay. So another thing for us to worry about. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what about, what about a, a massive earth killing asteroid? Um, you know, we, I watched the movie Armageddon. Uh, it's fun. Um, is that possible? I know Sagan and others have said probably definitely at some point, something you worry about. Well, I have a colleague who is an expert on asteroids and I'll just tell you what he likes to say, which you can take it or leave it, okay? But he likes to say that if it's really big enough to destroy, we'll see it, we'll see it in advance. Mm -hmm. Like we'll see it before it gets here. And so, yeah. so yeah, I mean. We'll so maybe the movie but... Armageddon is the way to think about it. <laughs> that we'll jump up and get up there and detonate it or break it up so it doesn't hit us. 
I mean, we'll have to, if it's going to be an asteroid, like the one that killed the dinosaurs, we'll have to, we'll have to do something about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about space travel uh, in a couple of minutes that we have left here. Um, I've heard about this idea of going to Proxima Centauri B um, and, but that's far away, sir. That's far yeah, away and really you far go fast. And so this idea of a solar sail where you put a laser beam on it to accelerate it and you get up to what, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, the speed of, uh, of light, if you will, that still puts it, what, 20, 25 years away <laughs> traveling that far? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is this something that's going to happen in the next 25, 30 years? Are we going to see this or is- It might. Yeah, it might happen. I mean, what's so amazing about space is just the development. And, you know, we have this phrase in exoplanets, the line between what is mainstream work and what is crazy, that line is constantly shifting. And so, yes, there's this idea. It's kind of been in science fiction, but is now being made real. And it's uh, to send so little tiny space ships, send thousands of them. Just like in the spring when the sea turtles, you know, there's lots of little babies, they don't all make it. But the yeah. goal will be just... Uh, send up these satellites that deploy a solar sail about a meter or two in diameter mm -hmm. and that a giant bank of lasers on the ground at a hundred gigawatt power would accelerate these sails without destroying them to, as you said, about a um, 20th the speed of light and they would travel. Yeah. It would take 20, 25 years to get there. And then a few years for the signal to get back. So right now there's money, not enough for the project, but money to burn down the technology. Cause there's a lot of very challenging things that have to be solved to do this. But the idea is out there now and it's been made real by cold, hard cash. Yep. So I like to think it will happen. And, you know, we sort of see this over and over in science. We start things sometimes that we won't see finished. Mm -hmm. It'll have to be the next generation yep. who finishes it. Yeah, it does. It does take a long term thinking process to to see this. And it makes you feel like you've got to be part of a team and sort of a committed logic that multi-generational um, thinking process. So let's let's sort of wrap up on some of your work, Sarah. I know you've done a lot of work on this solar shade idea, which I find fascinating, right? Because I'm sitting here, I'm looking out my window, it's bright. I go like this so I can actually see. Oh, look, now I can see. Uh, you're doing that with looking for exoplanets, right? Yes, yes. Well, let's go back to the transits we talked about before. You know, transits are very special. A system has to be aligned perfectly so that planet goes in front of the star. Yep. If the system's aligned in the sky as such, you won't see it. Won't see it. Yeah. So the problem of finding planets, especially small ones that might be like Earth, is that they're right next to a big, bright, massive star. Mm -hmm. And so the planet itself might not be extremely faint. Like the star is a huge problem. The star for our Earth sun case, our sun is 10 billion times fainter than our Earth. So yeah. imagine blocking that out to like 10 billion times. It's wow. And in fact, in the late, in the 1960s, people thought about how to do this, send up a giant specially shaped screen with its own spacecraft and block out the starlight and then formation fly with the space telescope. So yeah. only the planet light enters the telescope. So literally call, like a shade, like the way I would like, go like literally like a shade. And we call that star shade. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Um, all right. So we're going to end on this last question because Lots of people have sent me the same question. A couple in the chat, two have texted me, et cetera, said, you have to ask her if there is intelligent life or alien life out there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure it's a question you've been right. asked a gazillion times, Sarah, but we're well, going to end it with your insight. Yes, it is a great question. And I love that question. And, you know, we don't have a scientific answer to it. That's the problem. So whatever I say actually is just as good as what Vikram says or what any of the listeners might say. Mm -hmm. So I'll get to my speculation on that in a moment, but what I want you to know is that we're trying to answer that question in building blocks. So we, meaning the astronomers, we've already established that small rocky planets are common. Mm -hmm. We know that they're out there now. Our next step with the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope this October, we are going to, we, if they're there, we're gonna establish that small rocky planets with water vapor in their atmosphere, that means liquid water oceans are common. So the first step is just to say, hey, there's a lot of places life could live. Mm -hmm. And in our generation, or maybe a bit later, we'll find signs of life. And that may be not due to intelligent life, but due to bacteria. We won't know. But see where we're going? Like if we know the planets are common, the habitable environments are common, there's signs of life, then we will be more confident that life somewhere has evolved past that simple stage to intelligent life. Mm -hmm. So we're actually trying to break this down for you. We're trying to do the real work. But as for um, speculating, 
if there's intelligent life out there, my answer is yes. Just because there's so many stars and so many galaxies and it just has to be out there somewhere. Yeah, just the sheer math, right? We're talking about sheer math. billions and billions and billions. Hundreds of, of billions of stars in our galaxy and hundreds of billions of galaxies. Yeah. But it doesn't help if that intelligent life is in one of those hundreds of billions of galaxies so far away, we'll never know about it. I think people, we want to know about intelligent life closer. Yeah. I think it's got to be out there. Yeah. Interesting. Well, on that note, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up here, Sarah, but thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. I, I also will recommend for those that want to learn more about Sarah and her story, this book is uh, really worth reading. I enjoyed it immensely. I felt like I got to know Sarah uh, as a person, uh, and I learned a lot about science in the process, which was a win-win. So, uh, Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Great talking to you. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. If you find value in these discussions, we hope you'll consider supporting this series by becoming a member of the Think for Yourself community. More information can be found at www.patreon.com slash And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 